Hey guys, you're listening to episode 19 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we'll be talking to Greg Balmer, who co-authored the books God and Money and True Riches with our previous guest, John Cortinez. Welcome back to the show. My name is Cody Hobelman, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. On today's episode, Greg will share his unique perspective and dive into the details of how he and his wife, Allison, have navigated life with a finish line over the last several years. In addition to being an author, Greg is the chief growth officer of a healthcare technology firm called Nava Health and serves on the board of directors for Generous Giving. Before we jump in, I just wanted to remind you to check out the Finish Line Community Facebook group, where you can find other people seeking to honor God and experience deep joy and purpose in the way they handle their money. This kind of lifestyle happens best in the context of community and relationships. So check out the group on Facebook when you get a chance to find more people just like you. All right, let's get to the show. Well, here we are with Greg. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Excited to be here. All right. Well, I think we have a lot to get into, a lot of interesting topics, even just talking beforehand here. Why don't you start off just telling us a little bit about your background and your story and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure thing. And thanks again for having me here. It's a, it's a delight to be with you today. So a quick background on me. Uh, I grew up in Indiana, a great Christian parents, Christian home, went to a great Christian church. So uh, knew the Lord from an early age. At the same time, was very interested in business, even from a young age. My dad is a businessman. Even his hobby is to run a side business with his best friend, which I worked in as a kid growing up. So very interested in business from a young age and therefore money, right? You know, money and business are, are tightly intersected, obviously. Somehow, though, the concept of my faith and my finances never intersected in my head through my childhood, through my young adulthood. So I found myself in my early 20s. My wife and I were living in Boston at the time, uh, living the high life, to be frank. I was working in the private equity industry, earning a high income, and my wife and I were happy to spend just about every penny of it. (laughs) We were living in a fancy apartment, going on fancy vacations, dining at fancy restaurants. And to be honest, we did enjoy those things, but I can now look back and say that A lot of that was me using those things to measure my success relative to my peers. I would not have been able to articulate that at the time, but in the years since, the Holy Spirit has granted me clarity on where my true heart condition was at that time. We were still very involved in church, loved the Lord, but uh, I would say we, you know, were thinking about money separate from our faith. You know, we were dutifully paying our 10% tithe, you know, just because that's what we learned we were supposed to do as kids, but there was no worship in it. You know, it, it was, it was not a way for us to interact with God. It was more like the cost of admission that we paid God every week so that we could spend the other 90%, uh, however we saw fit. So it was with that mindset then that I ended up going to graduate school for my MBA. And that is really where God began to transform my mindset with respect to money. Yeah, and I know that's where you met John Cortinez, who we had on a couple of weeks ago. Tell us a little bit about what happened from there. Yes, yeah, so I met John at a Bible study uh, at our graduate school, uh, and 
there were seven guys in this study. I was one of them. John was one and there were five others. And because here we were seven Christians, you know, at a secular business school, we began to talk about this concept of, of faith and finance and how the two things intersected. And it is fascinating because as I mentioned a moment ago, that was a thought process that I had never gone down before. So it was in that context that John and I had the opportunity to cross-register into a class at the Divinity School called God and Money. And that class explored the intersection of faith and finance in our culture. So we looked at things like ethics of a state accepting tax funding from casinos or, you know, the Harvard endowment investing in fossil fuels, right? Like that type of stuff uh, were the topics that we explored. And the final term paper for that class could be written on any subject related to God and money. So John and I first asked if we could just do a PowerPoint presentation because as business school students, we hadn't actually written prose since like high school, (laughs) but the professor said no to that. So we chose to write a paper on how we would try to be wise stewards if we were ever blessed with more financial resources than we needed for our families. And, you know, there's no guarantee if that's going to happen, but the idea was if it does happen, how can we be wise uh, with those resources? So what we did is two main things. We read the whole Bible front to back, everything I had to say about money, all 2,350 verses. Thankfully, we did not have to research all of those on our own, but rather were able to leverage the work of many thoughtful Christians before us, in particular, Randy Alcorn and Howard Dayton. So for listeners who have not engaged with the work of those two guys, highly recommend it. So we read all those verses. And then we also surveyed 200 Harvard Business School alumni who were Christians. Uh, We had their contact details from the same Bible study that we were part of that had been going for years. And so we surveyed them, asking them really intimate questions around their finances, how much they made, how much they saved, their net worth, how much they gave, where they gave. So we used a combination of those two things, God's word and the example of incredibly generous, faithful Christians to write our paper. And, uh, you know, little did we know what, what God had in store with that paper. So through the process of interviewing all of these Harvard Business School grads and doing this term paper, what are some of the conclusions that you and John came up with? Yeah. So the thought process that God led us down is as follows. So based on studying his word and seeing the example of these families, we came to the following conclusions. One is that everything that we have truly belongs to God, which I would say is a somewhat self-evident statement that almost all Christians would intellectually assent to, but so few of us actually live that way. And certainly neither John nor I were living that way at the time. If that statement is true, that everything we have truly belongs to God, then everything ought to be used for his purposes, which includes providing for our families, as we see in 1 Timothy 5 and 6. But it made us question, well, what do you do besides that? You know, once, once you have adequately provided for your family, how do you think about what to do with the rest of God's money that he has entrusted to you? So if it ought to be used for his purposes, then we realize that there is this great opportunity to pour any excess resources that he may bless us with back into his kingdom for his glory. We realized, honestly, guys, that we had actually come to the writing of this term paper wanting to answer the question, 
how little do I need to give to be faithful? <laughs> if I'm being honest, like we didn't explicitly say that, you know, but I think that was really what it was about. You know, is, is it 10%? Like, you know, if we give 12%, is that like extra credit or something? <laughs> God totally turned that on its head. We realized that the question that scripture and these other you know, examples of Christians, what they were really asking us is how much do we really need to keep? How much do we really need to keep? You know, if, if God blesses us with more than we need, then how do we think about setting a limit on how much we would spend on ourselves per year and save up in total from a net worth concept? And then anything above and beyond that can be poured back into God's kingdom for God's glory, like I said. And you know, I want I want to be really clear that by no means am I claiming that this concept is like a, a command in scripture, but rather for us, it was a really helpful tool to live out the theological lessons that we do feel like we did see in scripture. So after writing the book and having a lot of these conversations kind of coming to the conclusions that you're talking about. What did it look like to start to actually implement some of these ideas in your own life? You know, it's funny. We, as I mentioned, wrote this paper, which then became the book called God and Money, named after the class we took. We wrote that while we were in grad school, both of us with extensive student loan debt, you know, negative net worth, basically. (laughs) Uh, And so John and I often joke that it is, one thing to sit in our ivory tower in Cambridge, Massachusetts, writing about what we will uh, one day do with money that we don't yet have. And it's another thing to put it into practice. So to share a bit of my personal story related to that, upon graduating from my MBA program, uh, my wife and I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I live now. And I joined a small healthcare startup there. And just six weeks after I joined the startup, it sold to a much larger healthcare company for over $400 million. And I was fortunate to be a small equity holder in the startup. And so I received a payout that I often joke is was infinity times my net worth, which was negative at the time, you know, just six weeks after graduating. And I think that happening can be accurately described as a test from God to see if I really would put into practice the lessons that he so graciously taught me while I was in this divinity school course, taking that class, writing the book. And I think I have a few observations from that experience. The first is that it is so helpful to have done the work in advance around the finish line concept Because then when the money comes, it was actually relatively straightforward to allocate it across the categories of spending, saving, and giving in a way that we had in advance prayed through, talked about as a couple, shared with other Christian friends, and so therefore felt like was faithful. Second, though, is even having financial finish lines does not somehow eliminate all temptation relative to money. I would argue that for many people, probably not everyone, but for many people, money is one of the top one or two major drivers of temptation in our lives. You know, pride's probably first for pretty much everybody, but money is like right up there. And we experienced that. I'll give you one specific example. Shortly after moving to Nashville, 
we realized that we needed a second family car because we had lived in like major urban centers for a long time prior to moving to Nashville. You know, for a while we didn't even have a car. Then, you know, we had one family car, which was fine if you live in downtown Boston, less fine if you live in the suburbs of Nashville. So, you know, we needed a second car. And I was looking at, you know, cool cars, Um, nothing, you know, too luxurious, I'll say, but I was certain that an Acura was in the center of God's will for my life (laughs) following this transaction that I mentioned before. And, you know, I talked to Allison, my wife about it, and thankfully she's much more faithful than I am. And she kind of looked at me and said, like, do we really need to spend that much on a car? And, you know, after I got done pouting, I acknowledged, no, you know, we don't. And I realized that my grandmother had a 2002 Mercury Grand Marquis sitting in her garage that she had not driven for like five years due to health reasons. She was not able to. And so, you know, I went home to Mammal's house, put some money into the car, you know, new battery, new tires, cleaned it up. And that's what I drove for the next five years. And, you know, I, I raised that to say, you know, this money did bring temptation despite having finish lines. And that car, that Grand Marquis stood as a daily reminder for me that my value is not in my stuff, which is a reminder that I needed. And then, and then the final lesson I'll, I'll, I'll offer relative to stewarding the funds from that initial sale of the business that I mentioned is I realized that being generous is not a choice that we make uh, just one time but rather is a choice that we make daily in gratitude to Christ for his generosity toward us. And and what I mean by that is connecting this concept of financial stewardship to growing closer to Christ and becoming more Christ-like. God really used the generosity that we were able to do with that money to teach us, hey, Greg and Allison, this is actually not about the giving. I don't need your money. You know, I'm a sovereign God. I'll accomplish my purposes with or without you. But this money is one tool that I have given you as humans to grow closer to me, participate in my kingdom work and become more like me. And we heard God teaching us that lesson uh, during that period of time. So those would be three of the main lessons that we learned from that. Greg, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about managing income above your finish line and the concept of the finish line being the amount that you consume as a household and everything above that being allocated to either saving or giving is pretty straightforward. But I think in practice, it brings up some more questions and starting to go through those experiences really teaches you a lot and you gain wisdom through that process. Could you share a little bit about, especially through these liquidity events, expected or unexpected, how do you handle allocating towards saving or giving in the moment? Yeah, great question. So I'll start by restating the point that there's no formula for this in scripture, right? And, you know, if if God wanted there to be, he would have put one in scripture. So I think what we can take from that is the wrestling with the Holy Spirit, with your spouse, in the counsel of otherwise Christians is in fact the point. And so I think uh, that's where I'll start. Our story, so I, I mentioned a moment ago that you know the company sold this one time. We then ended up you know bouncing around to a few other private equity firms over the years it, for a total of like three 
sales of the business over a five-year period, which is very atypical. Each of those sales created a significant liquidity event for our, our family, which is totally unexpected, completely undeserved. And, you know, my overwhelming emotion is gratitude to God for that career opportunity and, and for the financial provision that it offered our family. It did also bring with it complexity in how to remain faithful as our financial situation grew in size and complexity. Meanwhile, our family was also growing. Uh, so, you know, we now, my Allison and I now have three children, fourth on the way. And so those are also things that we were thinking about. So a couple lessons that we have learned as our finances have grown and our financial needs have grown. First is there's a tendency to get legalistic about this, where we think that if we breach our finish line or change it year over year, that somehow we're like a worse Christian. Or on the flip side, we make a commitment and then sort of just flippantly disregard it, which I don't think is right either. Rather, I think these finish lines are best thought of as guardrails that are thoughtfully put into place with one spouse if you're married through prayer and in consultation with wise Christian friends to help us grow closer to God and become more like him. So that's how I think we should think about them. That being said, Allison and I have had to revise our framework many times. You know, Nashville is a pretty expensive city to live in. So when we actually started looking at the real estate market, we were like, oof, you know, that's different than what we wrote in the book, (laughs) you know? Um, And another one is, you know, number of kids. And then another one is, so this starts to get into the weeds a little bit. So, you know, hopefully listeners like the math, but one concept is the, what you earn in one year and what you'll spend in one year. The other is the net worth piece. How much will you save in total? And to be honest, we didn't anticipate having to deal with those questions for like decades, right? But actually it happened much sooner than we anticipated. And so one area that Allison and I have struggled to think through is what I call capital purchases, which are basically large one-time purchases, like purchasing a home. Or you know, earlier I mentioned that I drove my grandma's car, the Grand Marquis, regrettably, we got into an auto accident in October of last year that totaled the vehicle. Now, thank God everyone's okay. So that's the most important thing, but the car was totaled. So we had to buy a new car. And so when you have hurdled your net worth finish line and then have to make big capital purchases, thinking through how to do that in a faithful way that isn't just like breaching your commitments you've made just because you can, can bring a lot of complexity. So those are some of the things that Allison and I are like real time working through. Yeah, actually, that now that you bring that up, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that specific issue. You know, how should somebody think about buying a house or buying a car, some other large purchase like that? Those are probably the two most common in that category, especially buying a house. That's come up a couple of times on the podcast before, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so let me start by recommending what not to do, which is what I used to do. So what I used to do with capital purchases is I actually had like a capitalization schedule that I would keep in a spreadsheet where I would amortize the cost of these things over like many years. And, you know, it's like if we bought a, let's say we bought a couch for a thousand dollars, you know, I'd be like, well, it has a 10 year life. So like, I'm only taking a hundred dollar hit per year for 10 years, you know, and it, it, it quickly just seeped into 
you know, more of a spreadsheet exercise than worship, right? Like if you ever feel like how you're treating your money is getting away from worship, like you've probably done something wrong, right? So me spending hours doing capitalization schedules is like probably not the right way to think about it. Where our thoughts have evolved on capital purchases. So let's let's start with a car. The best advice I've heard on this is actually what John, my co-author does, which he saves $500 a month for a car. And then whenever he actually has to buy the car, that doesn't really count toward his finish line, right? Like he kind of separates saving the 500 a month. Like that's what goes against his finish line. When the cash actually flows out is in some ways irrelevant. Does that make sense? And I think that's faithful because it's like planning ahead and, you know, he's setting how much he thinks is realistic to spend on a car in total, but he's not over-programming it, you know? And then relative to a house, the way that I think about a house is you don't get to control what the real estate market is where you live. And I firmly believe we need faithful Christians in all geographies to be salt and light, to represent the city on the hill. And so like, I would never counsel a Christian who lives in San Francisco or New York City or Moscow or Tokyo or Hong Kong to move just because real estate's expensive and it hurdles their finish line. Like that doesn't make any sense. So instead, I think you should think about your house as, or your apartment as, I think the best language on this is, comes from a pastor in New York whose name is John Tyson, who has this fantastic sermon on generosity. And he says that Christians ought to live with provocative lifestyle distinction relative to their peers, provocative lifestyle distinction. And what he means by that is not that everyone is going to know your financial situation, but if they did they would consider your choice of where and how you live to be provocative by which in this case, he means under your means. (laughs) And so what I would say is real estate in Hong Kong costs what it costs. But if you earn a certain amount, live under your means with your housing decision, not just to save dollars, but actually for provocative lifestyle distinction. And so that's how my wife and I thought about our home purchase is we bought a nice home that more than adequately meets the needs of our families, to be honest, but is well under, you know, what we like, you know, strictly speaking, could have afforded. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think that's kind of the same line of thinking that Keelan and I are starting to develop ourselves, but it really helps to hear from someone who's been doing this for years and has experience in these exact issues. But I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask about how you handle giving specifically and what to give to once you get to the point where you're making money in excess of your finish line what do you do next yes so first comment i'll make is that many people will not have yet hit their finish line and there were many years you know where we had not yet reached our finish line and so i do want to affirm to those people like don't wait to give you know, definitely give on and give generously on the path up to the finish line. To fail to do so is to be presumptive around God's provision and to miss out on sanctification and fun with your creator along the way. So definitely give along the way. That being said, I think whether you have hit your finish line or not, having a giving strategy is critical in my opinion. What I mean by giving strategy is thinking about 
how much you'll give in advance and also where you'll give according to specific themes. So here, here's how I think about this. We studied scripture, John and I studied scripture, Old Testament for sure, but also probably more intensely the New Testament to see where the Holy Spirit called the early church to give. And we saw three main themes really pop. The first is to serve the poor. And if I may say so, I think this is the theme that the Western church is worst at. I think this is the one that we least emphasize. It's actually the one most cited in scripture. Uh, and so I, I, I would I would offer that if any Christian's giving strategy does not have a significant pillar around serving the poor, like we're missing something. The second is to spread the gospel or evangelism. So that's very clear. You know, you can look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as an obvious example of that. And so that, it, you know, I think in our modern day manifests mostly as, you know, missions work, spreading the gospel both domestically and internationally. And then third is building up the church or discipleship. And I think for most people, what that will look like is giving to your local church. I'm definitely not like a storehouse tither theology. Now, that's not my view, which, you know, for those who may not be familiar, is this concept that like your full 10% tithe should go to your local church. Like I don't adhere to that. I don't see that in scripture. You know, it's, it's fine if some people do, but I do think that, a, you know, a significant block of one's giving ought to go to one's local church because it is clearly the local church that God has ordained and the Holy Spirit fuels as his primary tool here on earth. So those three themes serve the poor, spread the gospel, and build and equip the church. So for Allison and me, what we would say is that those three themes, I would go so far as to say those are commands in scripture. Specifically what you give to, like which ministries and the exact mix between the three, that's an area of Christian discretion, which is beautiful. And God gives us freedom to decide that. You know, do you like World vision or compassion, up to you. Both are great, right? You know, you know. Do you like InterVarsity or Campus Crusade or Navigators? You know, up to you. Christian discretion. And when I say up to you, really, what I mean is, you know, discourse with the Holy Spirit and following His prompting. <laughs> so the the way Allison and I give is across those three themes, and then there's actually a fourth, what I would call like an undergirding theme that I, you know, don't see explicit in Scripture, but I think is an enabler that God has uniquely called my family to, which is fostering generosity. And so Allison and I give money to ministries that foster and grow generosity in the kingdom. For instance, Generous Giving, National Christian Foundation, The Signatory, there's others. And, and so that's, I, I call that undergirding because, you know, if I can give a dollar to that and then they go get other people to give $10 to the kingdom across the main three pillars, like that's a great return. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about that and to give a little bit of structure to you know how you approach your giving and managing whatever excess God gives you to manage. I'm curious, you know, we've talked on the podcast before about the importance of always supporting your local church. That's the only way that the church is supported and God has put us wherever we are with whatever church we're with we have a responsibility to that. For those other two pillars that you mentioned, the missions gospel side of things, and then the the provision and serving the poor side of things, obviously there's a lot of personal discretion in that, but 
We always like to hear people's opinion on how to kind of balance the two of those. Is there a place for ministries that work specifically in provision but have no gospel aspect to them? Should everything have a gospel focus? I don't know if you have any thoughts on how to kind of balance those two aspects. Obviously, there are also some ministries that do both of those, but you know, there's a lot of different ways to approach that. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, sure thing. So I'll give you my opinion. This is one guy's opinion. I also start by saying I do firmly believe that the Holy Spirit calls different people to have different mixes and emphases within those pillars. You know, we're all different parts of the body, uh, which is beautiful. And I think it's about finding harmony and unity in our diversity. And so I'll give you what, you know, my two cents, but would encourage everyone to wrestle this down with the Holy Spirit and in the council of otherwise Christians, as I've mentioned previously. I'll also make one other comment, which is to say, what about non-Christian giving? So I feel pretty strongly on this point. I'll confess, like I'm probably like a little bit on a far end of the spectrum on this point, which is I think that as a Christian, the vast, vast, vast majority of our giving should be to gospel causes. Like I kind of want to say like effectively all of our giving, but I'm just being, I'm not quite saying that, (laughs) although I want to. (laughs) In my, my personal situation is Allison and I actually any giving we do to non-gospel causes, we don't count as giving. We count it as spending. So for instance, like I give a little money every year to my alma mater, my undergraduate institution, Indiana University. And I don't count that toward like what I agree with God that I'm going to give at the beginning of the year. I'm not saying everyone has to do that, but that's how we think about it. Uh, Because I do think our primary calling is to be heirs to the kingdom of God here on earth. And that's how we ought to steward our funds. With respect to serving the poor versus, you know, evangelism and missions, I don't have like a really strong view on the exact mix between those two. Um, I The way that we tend to do it is kind of one-third, one-third, one-third across the three pillars. That has looked different in prior years. And in fact, looks a little different this year because of of COVID. And what I mean by that is a few of the ministries that we serve who focus on serving the poor have had massive opportunities to serve the poor this year because of COVID. And I don't know if everyone's really thought through this. I had not. You know, coronavirus has clearly been tragic and highly disruptive in the West, but even more so in third world countries where not so much the virus itself, but rather the economic consequences of shutdowns have uh, destroyed local economies that operate on sort of daily subsistence. You know, if you're a day laborer and like you buy dinner for your family with the money you earned like that day, then being told you have to stay in your house for months at a time, you know, but, and I'm not trying to get into the politics of whether that's appropriate. I'm just saying that did happen, you know? And so how do those families feed their children. And those, you know, those children, them not going to school, it's like, well, they don't have internet. Like they just can't do anything. They're just stuck at home. Right. It's, you know, my kids had to do virtual school for a while. That was not fun. (laughs) You know, it's way different to just like miss a whole year or two of school, especially if you're already poor. Right. And so Allison and I really emphasized giving to those causes this year, because I thought is where, you know, the Holy spirit calls the church to stand up in times of crises 
We see that in the New Testament where Gentile churches donated a lot of money to support the Jerusalem church in a time of famine. And so, I, you know, I think there's precedent for that in scripture and it's just logical. And so I would say, you know, our mix kind of varies year by year as the Spirit calls. So, Greg, here on the podcast, we get the benefit of speaking to a lot of different people and networking with some incredibly generous people that really inspire us. And I think our listeners really benefit from a little bit of that perspective. And I know you do a lot of speaking engagements. I saw you speak at the Kingdom Advisors Conference this year. And next week, you'll be speaking at the Generous Giving Celebration of Generosity. And I think you're just in front of a lot of like-minded people who prioritize giving and generosity in their lives. Do you have any stories that come to mind that you could share with our listeners about either causes or, or people that are doing incredible work in the field of generosity? Yes. So for listeners who may not be familiar, I highly recommend checking out the organization Generous Giving, which is a Christian ministry that exists to spread the message of biblical generosity. And they do that mostly by just telling stories of the work that God has done in the lives of radically generous families. So if you go to their website, you can watch a bunch of stories that are you know, tearjerkers and make you smile and laugh, but overwhelmingly just make you realize how generous of a God we serve. And I've been fortunate to get to interact with some of those families. So I'll, I'll start with a story that is a form of generosity, probably different, Cody, than you expected when asking me the question. There's a couple in Idaho who the guy owns a business, the husband does, and one of his uh, employees is female and is married to a man. Her husband has a rare genetic disorder that causes a lot of issues for him. But one of those is his liver was shutting down. And so the wife of the business owner donated part of her liver to him, a surgery that, you know, while generally safe, obviously any surgery, I mean, Keelan, you know, this (laughs) has risk associated with it. And it gave this guy 10 extra years of life and those t- relative to his family timing, like those are the 10 years that are going to get his kids from the house into college. What financial gift could even come close to matching that? None, none could obviously. And so it's just this like provocative act of generosity that I think so displays the heart of the kingdom of God. So that's one example. Another example that's more financially based. There's an entrepreneur in Memphis who owns a a crane and rigging company. And he grew the company. His parents started it technically, but it was like in their bedroom. I mean, when he took it over, I mean, it was like, you know, it was almost nothing when he took it over and has grown it now into a business that does $500 million in revenue per year, generates over 40 million in profit per year. He has a group of people that the whole time have set his annual salary for him. He has six kids. The highest his salary ever got when all six kids were at home is 160 grand, which look, just to be clear, and he says this too, it's not like a pauper's lifestyle, right? I mean, it's not like he's living in a cardboard box at 160 grand, but certainly with six children, he's not living luxuriously, right? And now that most of their kids are out of the house, their salaries is like a hundred grand, which which again, you know, they're not even close to poor, but it pales in comparison to the wealth available to him. And he has a committee of employees who give the money away that the business generates to kingdom causes. 
which has had all these really cool knock-on effects in the faith of his employees and their families. And then the craziest thing he did, in my opinion, is he could have sold the business for like hundreds of millions of dollars. But instead, what he did is he gave it to a trust. So now the business is no longer even in his control and all the profits forever will go to kingdom causes. So to me, it's just this incredible walking the talk of saying everything I have truly does belong to God. And you see, I think, the fruit of his choices playing out in his personal walk with the Lord, his wife's, and and their marriage. Like, I think you can just see that God has blessed their faithfulness. Yes, look, the company has grown, so I'm not trying to attach that. Like, I don't think God grew the company just because he was giving money away, but I do think God has given them spiritual blessing because of their faithfulness with their money. Yeah, that seems to always be the case that not only does God bless us spiritually and mentally and emotionally when we are generous just from getting to be a part of that, but it's infectious and it spreads to everyone that is involved. And when you look at an organization like Generous Giving, that is what's going on there. It's just an infectious spread of generosity as more and more people experience stories like that or hear those stories and desire to step into that kind of a story with God. You know, God, that kind of stuff is going on all the time around us. And for a lot of my life and for a lot of all of our lives, we're just kind of oblivious to it and not aware of what God's doing. And when your eyes are opened to that and how God is working, it just makes you want to step into those stories and and to be involved and to be, you know, in that same kind of story. So thanks for sharing. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And Keely, you know, to build on that point you made, I think is key. I don't think that this connection between living generously and then spiritual formation, I don't think that connection is random. I think it's actually really logical. And the reason I think that is because when we live generously, like a few things happen. The first thing that is happening is we are recognizing God's provision because we're funneling it back out, you know? Uh, And so that I think puts us in right position with God. Second is it grows our empathy toward other of God's children. Uh, And anytime that happens, I think it just opens up our heart and we exchange love, you could say, with others in a way that makes us uh, more fully human and, and more in alignment with God's vision for our lives. And we feel purposeful, frankly. I, I think generosity is one of many ways that God offers us to feel purposeful for his kingdom work. Uh, you know, he doesn't need us, but he chooses to work with humans to build his kingdom here on earth. That's his choice. One of the first questions that I have for him when I go to heaven one day is, why of all possible plans did he pick that plan? (laughs) Because we mess up a lot, but uh, that is his plan. And so um, we feel purposeful. And so because we are in right position with God, loving other humans better, feeling purposeful in building his kingdom, like that, that is the posture that we exhibit when we are living generously. Why should we then be surprised that spiritual formation occurs more when we're being generous? Yeah, and that reminds me of something that you said earlier, which is the idea that God doesn't need us at all to do whatever he's going to do. I mean, you look all through the Bible, and he's 
literally parting the sea and, you know, blocking out the sun, like doing incredible stuff without a single human hand involved. If he wants to do something, he's going to do it. Yet he chooses to use us all the time. And I think it's for that exact reason that he builds us up through using us and, and allowing us to be part of his work and what he's doing and how he is impacting other human lives. And he gives us the blessing to be a part of that if we choose it. He doesn't force it upon us, but the door is always open for that. So I wanted to take a, a kind of a practical turn here for somebody who's listening to this and is like, I'm sold. I want to be a part of this. I want to have some kind of a structure to be able to do this and is interested in forming a finish line, but has no idea where to start. And I know that the first thing you'll probably say is to find a Christian counsel. Let's, so let's say you're the Christian counsel that they have come to and are looking for advice. What, what advice would you give them on where to start? Yes. Uh, my first piece of advice would be to feel tr- tremendous freedom in setting their finish line. I'll point back to the fact that there's no formula in scripture. And so clearly God wants us to work this out with him. Second is to feel tremendous freedom to change it over time. I think this is the type of thing that you test and experiment and iterate and grow from versus feeling some sort of spiritual guilt burden <laughs> to get it right the first time, you know? So feel freedom. The second is, I think the biggest question that people have is like how to know where is it appropriate to set the line? And where John and I have landed on this in our personal lives, this is where our line is. Not everyone has to have the same line. Is try to set a line where you avoid luxury simply for luxury's sake. That's kind of like where we've drawn the line. So we're going to provide for our family. In fact, we're commanded to do so in First Timothy. And so what does provide for your family? It's not just a subsistence existence, I don't think. I think God is glorified when we enjoy his provision, as we see in Micah 3 and Proverbs and other places. So for us, providing for our family looks like safety. It looks like opportunity. It looks like flourishing. But it falls short of luxury simply for luxury's sake. The reason that I say simply for luxury's sake is because that does not mean that my wife and I never partake in luxury. You know, for our 10th wedding anniversary, we went on a nice trip and we really enjoyed it. You know, or we recently took our kids to Disney World, which is egregiously expensive for those of you who have done that before. But the delight on my daughter's face and her princess dress while she's, you know, engaging with the princesses, right? Like I felt good about that, but we're not going to do that every year, right? You know, so it's about indulging in luxury. You could even say like as worship or for God's glory and celebration of his provision as a special occasion, but not just luxury and luxury's sake all the time for no reason. Um, When we first set our finish line, that was in 2015, We set it for a family of four in an average cost of living city. And we set ours at $100,000 is where we set it. And what that gets you is a nice home, but not a mansion, you know, safe cars, but not luxury cars, you know, vacations, but not, you know, first class to Tahiti, right? You you see what I'm saying? Like if you just go category by category, uh, you, you can buy safety, you can buy opportunity and you can buy flourishing, but that's about it. Now, We're a family of five going on six in a higher than average cost of living city. 
And our line now is about 150. There's also like, we can get into the weeds, I guess, but there's like some private school questions in there, how you count for that and some other stuff that we can geek out on if you want to. But, but to summarize, I would encourage families to think about in your geography for your family size, how can you provide safety, opportunity, and flourishing, but falling short of luxury simply for luxury's sake? That feels like a good zone to us. Actually, since that question has come up before about schooling, I am interested to hear your thoughts on that because I know that there's a wide range of opinions and a lot of people trying to figure that out. So I'm curious, especially if you have multiple kids, what that has looked like for you guys and, and even how your views have changed on that over the years. Yes. My primary opinion is that private school is so incredibly expensive. (laughs) That's my main opinion. Uh, No, but joking aside, Allison's and my views have changed on this over the years. So we, the part of Nashville we live in has great public schools. And that was one of the reasons we chose to move to this part of town. The main reason is a short commute for me because we really value the family time. And we should talk about that too, actually, potentially is the trade-off of money and time in this conversation. But In any event, our intention had been to send the kids to the public schools that were near our home because they were great. When we got closer to actually making the decision, we really started thinking more about Christian character formation and the type of character formation they might be getting in the public schools and where that would be in alignment with and not in alignment with the character that we were building in them at home. Uh, Or I should say the spirit is building in them, hopefully through our faithfulness. And we came to the conclusion that we really valued our kids being around strong, faithful Christians who were not just preaching character to them, but living it themselves for eight hours a day, five days a week for the next you know, 13 years of their life. Uh, and so we ultimately came to the conclusion that we wanted that for our kids enough that we felt like it was a good investment. And so we're sending our kids to a really good local Christian private school. I think you just have to be super thoughtful about what you're buying and how God is glorified through that. So for instance, like I would, it'd be harder for me to understand why a Christian would invest that much money in a non-Christian private school, depending on where you live, right? Because one of my earlier comments is I think Christians should live everywhere to be salt and light. And, you know, there's plenty of geographies that do not have good or safe public schools. And so in those cases, like private school makes sense for other reasons. So I guess to clarify my comment, it's harder for me to understand why a Christian would forego a good public school for a non-Christian private school. But I'm sure there are plenty of people who have landed in that position faithfully. So I, I so that, that's where we landed. So our, our kids go to this awesome Christian school down the street. It's very expensive. I would say it is the one line item in our annual budget that I like, you know, think hardest about relative to the finish line, but, but we're in a right now in a place where we feel comfortable with it. Yeah. We have four kids. Our oldest just turned five and we'll be starting kindergarten next year. And we live right in the middle of the city of Philadelphia. So these are all uh, very interesting questions that both my wife and I are kind of thinking through as well. And yeah, so I appreciate your feedback. You mentioned the trade-off of time and money, which I think is a great point that Cody and I have gotten into a couple of times. That's played out a couple of ways in my life and with my wife. She's a photographer, and so you know all her business is commissioned. You know, she chooses how much to take on and how much to not take on. One of the interesting 
effects that we didn't even expect when setting a finish line is that she was kind of incentivized to not take as many clients on when it just meant time away from family, you know, like that fourth wedding weekend in a row or something like that uh, has been an interesting trade-off. And another way that that's played out for us with time and money is we hired a cleaning service to clean our house every few weeks, which we actually don't count within our spending of our finish line because that allows her to keep working. And if we were to not have that and she was trying to take care of all those things at home, she would just take on less work in order to do that. And the way that kind of all the incentives work out is she would actually just take on less work to be doing that. And she could be making more and ultimately giving more by taking on an extra shoot or two. So it's interesting how all the kind of time money balance gets all flipped around when you have a finish line and you're planning on giving everything over a certain amount away. I'm interested if you've had any experience with that or what that's looked like for you guys. Yeah, totally. So I I would say within this community of folks who are passionate about finish lines, I have seen there be the case that pride seeps in about, it's, it's more about like prideful frugality, even at the significant expense of time. And what I would say is you look at for most people in the West, not everyone, but for most people in the West, our, our most scarce resource is actually not money, it's time. And this concept of stewardship to me is comprehensive. It, just, it doesn't pertain solely to our money, but to all we have, including our time. If time is our most scarce resource, then we ought to be managing it just as diligently as we manage our money. And, you know, I confess I do not do this as well as I, you know, I've put a lot more thought into how I manage my money than how I manage my time, to be honest. And, you know, I would say a couple of things on this. I think that buying convenience is one of my personal vices. So it's just my personality. Therefore, take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt, if you're listening to this, because <laughs> I may be biased. But I do think there are plenty of times, and Keelan, you just highlighted a terrific example with the cleaning service, where buying time is a rational decision to glorify God through how you're using all of your resources. There are other times when you buy time and then waste that time, you know, and and that was probably like not good stewardship. By no means am I saying that like, you know, all of our time has to be purposeful on mission and you can never just chill. I mean, I think seventh day rest is a, a, a major biblical theme that flows through all of scripture. So like, let's not forget that. I also think that Christians can offer a lot more to the kingdom than just their money. And so like, whether you are volunteering, whether you are sitting on nonprofit boards whether you are serving friends, using your financial resources to do those things is awesome. I mean, it's in direct service of the kingdom. And so, you know, I, I think that we, we have to look at the whole picture. I think we should be willing to, you know, use money to obtain time when doing so is for God's glory and, and serving others and growing closer to him. 
Greg, you mentioned a finish line community, and I just wanted to get a sense of, since you literally wrote the book on financial finish lines, what does the finish line community look like? It seems that Keelan and I initially felt like we came up with this idea, and other people had obviously come up with this idea before, including yourself and John and and many others, but the ability to come together and discuss has been such a blessing. So how prevalent is this idea of a finish line in your opinion? Yeah, and and to your point, Cody, you know, John and I did not independently come up with the idea either. We got it from Randy Alcorn, who I mentioned earlier and who is amazing. If my faith ever grows to be 10% of Randy's, then I'll be very happy. (laughs) So a unique part of our story is earlier I mentioned that I had this Bible study in grad school with seven guys and the seven of us are married. So there's the 14 of us total. And we've formed what we call our board of directors for life. And it's this concept of, you know, after we graduate, we're going to move all over the place apart from each other, which happened. You know, we, we live from New York to LA now all over. And you know, this group is not intended to replace local accountability and kind of local community in the local church, but like a, a business, like a company, they have an independent board of directors that convenes typically quarterly to advise on like the big strategic issues for the business. And so that's what this group is. You know, we advise each other on the big things in life. We say, so, you know, our relationship with God, our, our roles as husbands, our roles as fathers, as employees, One component of that is giving and stewardship. And so we share our finances with each other on an annual basis. And the point is not to see how much each person spent or gave. It's rather to celebrate and praise God for his faithfulness as we try to be wise stewards. So the main thing we do really is identify what goals we feel like God is calling us to with respect to stewardship that year. And then how did we do relative to those goals? And it's a lot of celebration of the best giving moments of the year, which may or may not have anything to do with the gift size. You know, it may be the best surprise moment or how we were most uplifted or encouraged or what we learned about God. And so now, look, there is an element of accountability. Like the fact that I know I have to share my finances with these other guys, like <laughs> I'm sure plays a role in helping me remain faithful to the finish line. But that's not the main point. Uh, and it's, it's been a tremendous blessing to our family to have this group. All right. Well, as we're winding down here, Greg, at the end of every episode, we have what's called our manager minute. You know, we'd spend all this time talking about how we are managers managing what always has belonged to God and always will belong to God and trying to figure out how we do that well as Christians. And when we have guests on the show, we like to hear their thoughts on what we can be doing with any excess that God puts in our hands to manage. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts or suggestions you could share for our listeners. Yeah, sure thing. So two comments come to mind. One is people often question, well, I just don't know what to give to you. My recommendation in that case is to go read Romans 12, where Paul lists spiritual gifts and he outlines how God has, has gifted each of us with certain spiritual giftings and think about which of those apply to you and then connect with a ministry that does that thing. 
and give your time and your money. And my bet with you will be that you will come alive in a way that you have never before experienced when you are giving your time and your money in congruence with your spiritual gifts. So that may be hospitality, that may be teaching. There's a host of spiritual gifts that may most apply to you. So that's number one. Number two is, and I mentioned this earlier, but I, I, you know, where the Holy Spirit's really been pushing Allison and me this year is to think about the very immediate and acute needs that many poor countries have because of coronavirus. And so I would really encourage you to think about how to help serve financially right now by providing immediate needed emergency support to communities that have just been completely devastated uh, due to economic turmoil related to coronavirus. Compassion is one of many Christian ministries that has the ability to give to that very precise, specific need. Um, so that's one option, but there's many you can choose from who, who are good at that. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. And we've heard compassion mentioned before. I think that's an awesome way to get involved specifically in coronavirus relief around the world. Well, I think that's about all the time we have. Greg, thanks so much. This has been a huge blessing. And obviously, you have a huge wealth of wisdom and experience to share with us. So thanks so much for, for taking the time to be here with us today. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Had a, had a blast. God's blessings to you. Thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting up financial finish line or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram at Finish Line Pledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Send us any questions you have, and we'll answer them on one of our future episodes. You can also join the conversation on the Finish Line forums. There you can discuss your thoughts about recent episodes and ask questions about the Finish Line process. We also post our upcoming episode topics in the group so we can hear your thoughts about each topic and hear specifically what you want us to discuss on the show. Check it out at finishlinepledge.com slash forum. As always, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 19. That's it for today. We'll see you next week.